So as we carry on in our series then in Ephesians 2, you'll remember the chapter as a whole forms an argument that Paul is making towards unity in the church, particularly with reference to the Jews and the Gentiles now worshipping together. His desire is to get them to a point of understanding and embracing and rejoicing in verse 22 of this chapter, that Jew and Gentile are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit that is the church. And the way in which Paul is making this argument is to show that in Christ there is no distinction. You'll remember last time we were in Ephesians 2, we spoke about the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ that brings us near. Paul's argument in 11 through 13 is that once we were far off, speaking specifically at that time in his argument to the Gentiles, you were outside of the people of God. You had not received his electing love. You were outside and there were disadvantages to that, to put it mildly. To be outside of the people of God is to be in a miserable state. And Paul says the wonder of your salvation is that the blood of Christ has brought you near. The blood of Christ has brought you into the people of God. In verse 14 and following, he then continues in his argument, essentially unpacking for us just why it is that that blood is so effective. What is it that makes the blood of Christ so precious? How is the blood of Christ so sufficient? Not simply to save on an individual level, but more than that, to bring us into the people of God. What is so unique about the blood of Christ? And Paul explains with his opening assertion, which sits as a banner over the rest of his argument, the blood of Christ is so effective, so precious, because Christ himself is our peace. The opening words of verse 14, they sit as a banner over the rest of Paul's argument. He has much to say to explain to us. But as an opening assertion, he simply declares in a very emphatic way, Christ himself is our peace. That is the reason that the blood of Christ is sufficient to save and to bring us into the people of God. Now, I mentioned it briefly this morning. Again, in the Lord's kindness, he married up our evening and our morning services. This morning, blessed are the peacemakers they shall be called sons of God. Where does that peace come from? The impulse, the desire to be a peacemaker, it has to stem from an understanding of the gospel, an embracing of the gospel of peace. And I mentioned this morning just how deliberate, careful, and emphatic Paul is in Ephesians 2 when he says not merely that Christ brings peace, 
Not merely that he facilitates peace or makes peace possible, though these things are true. But Paul goes further and he says, Christ himself is our peace. Christ himself is our peace. And by phrasing this theological reality of the gospel of peace in those terms, he is bringing us back to the central idea that permeates all the way through Paul's writings, namely of our salvation being rooted in Christ. Christ is not merely a means to get towards the benefits of salvation. He is the benefit of salvation. Christ is our hope, our confidence, our salvation. He is our peace. So as Paul phrases it like this way, he is reminding us within the context of these verses. He is in these verses making an argument for the unity that the church enjoys. As Paul phrases this truth in this way that Christ is our peace, He's reminding us that our unity is grounded in Him. As we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we enjoy a unity that can only be found in the Gospel, cannot be found outside of the church, as we enjoy that special unity, we must remember it is grounded in Christ. He's the centerpiece of who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now in that simple reality, before we go any further in Paul's argument, he has much to say this evening in these few verses. Before we go any further so as to unpack Paul's argument, simply understand there is a great encouragement to be found in the reality that Christ is our peace. And there's a great exhortation The great encouragement is that our unity is found in Christ. It's not founded in anything else. Increasing degrees of unity are not hard to find. As we labor by God's grace to love one another and share our lives with one another, there is not a hidden formula There is not some theological truth that is beyond our understanding that we must strive to attain. Simply bear in mind that our unity is always only ever to be found and grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. So as the Lord has added to our number, as He sees fit to bring more people to this church, as He may bring trials to us in days to come. As we thought about this morning, invariably there will be confrontation within the body. We always are encouraged by the reality that our unity begins and ends with the person of Christ. You see, the formula is actually very simple. If you desire that this church would be one of the utmost unity, that our hearts truly would be knit together in love, that we would be co-laborers in the gospel together, all we must do is fix our eyes on Jesus. 
We just bring our gaze back upon Him. There's not a hidden formula. Sunday by Sunday, we simply fix our eyes on Christ. And the encouragement is, that is the biblical roadmap for unity. Now the exhortation, the flip side of that, is that we would always be Christ-centered. Whatever lies ahead for us as a local congregation, whatever the Lord has ordained for your life personally, our unity can only ever be found in the person of Christ. And rest assured, as soon as you take your eyes off of Jesus, you individually will not only start to walk a disobedient path, but as a church, our unity will evaporate. We may be tempted to found our unity upon something else. A good thing. Another doctrine that we're particularly fond of. Or something that we might have in common that is not the gospel. But as soon as we found our unity on anything but Christ, our unity evaporates. And so the exhortation that comes as Paul leads this argument with the profound reality that Christ himself is our peace, the exhortation that flows from that is that by God's grace through much prayer, we would always be a people who are fixing our eyes collectively, individually upon the person of the Lord Jesus. He is our peace. Now, from there, Paul simply unpacks some of the realities that flow from Christ being the peacemaker. Some of the realities that flow out of Christ being our peace, not least that he has broken down the dividing wall, that he has abolished the law, and that through one spirit he has provided access to God. They're the three points of Paul's argument. They'll be the three points of our sermon this evening. With the overarching banner of Christ, our peace, what then do we enjoy as an implication, firstly, that he has broken down the dividing wall? Remember that Paul at this point is speaking very specifically to the Jew-Gentile issue in the church at Ephesus, and there is an interpretive issue that surrounds his use of this term, the dividing wall of hostility, verse 14. Christ has made us both one, he's broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall, that is the dividing wall of hostility. What is Paul referring to there? Many commentators believe that Paul is referring to a physical wall that exists in the temple structure in first century Jerusalem and would have been known of by the Jews and the Gentiles, a wall that existed so as to prevent the Jews worshipping alongside the Gentiles The Gentiles could only go so far within the temple structure and then the wall stopped them and the Jews would go further toward the Holy of Holies. 
And many would suggest Paul is arguing that wall has now been broken down. The problem being, in Jesus' time and after his death on the cross, which was sufficient to bring these two people together, Jew and Gentile, the wall still stood. By no means was it broken down in any physical, literal sense. And so most likely, Paul is using the term in a metaphorical manner. He's appealing to the physical wall so as to refer in turn to a relational wall. The physical wall still stands, but relationally, the dividing wall specifically of hostility has been abolished. There was a relational divide between Jew and Gentile. It was a relational divide grounded in hostility and grounded in a sense of superiority, especially on the part of the Jews. As they understood in the Old Testament that they were God's chosen people, they had grown to view themselves as superior to the Gentiles And so there was hostility between the two groups. And Paul's whole argument throughout this chapter has been that there can be no hostility because the gospel abolishes any sense of division. Think back with me on the argument we've been covering in verses 1 through 10 over the last few months. You'll know it well by now. Paul begins by saying you all had a common starting point. Jew and Gentile alike, there was none that was distinct in this respect. Namely, you were all dead in your trespasses and sins. He then moved on and said, and you all have a common salvation. The common salvation that Jew and Gentile enjoy alike is that you are saved by grace and grace alone. You can't bring anything to the table. You can't claim to have earned your salvation. You all have this common salvation that is rooted in the grace of God. And then he goes on and says, and now you all have a common experience. The common experience that you share in Christ is that you do not boast, but you work, labor in works, good works that God has prepared for you in Christ Jesus. So you see, when you really come to terms with the gospel, you understand there is absolutely no room for any sense of superiority. You cannot afford within the body of Christ to have any sense of superiority over anyone else. Because you're nothing special and neither are they. We've all been saved by God's grace from a position of having been dead in our trespasses and sins. Remember when we were having our babies in those newborn days, and they seemed to go on and on and on forever. Every so often, you come across a couple perhaps who maybe had a sense of being in a socially superior category to others. It would happen often in the military because the military culture is one that promotes that sense of thinking. And then a few months down the line, this same couple now have a newborn baby. And we would laugh at how that phase is a great leveler. 
doesn't matter where you began, you're now up to your arms in diapers and baby food, surviving on just a few hours sleep a night, and you can't have any sense of being superior to anyone else in that phase. Even more so, the gospel is the great leveler. When you come to terms with your salvation, you understand you're no better than anyone else. You're just as privileged as everyone else. There can be no room for hostility or superiority. Now, this simple observation brings with it a great encouragement and a great exhortation. The great encouragement is that you would rejoice. Rejoice as you come every Sunday to worship with God's people and you look around you and you see how marvelous is His plan to have brought people together in one body who otherwise would have had no cause to share their lives with one another and who in other circumstances may well have believed themselves to be superior to others. It is the inclination of the human heart to grow in pride and to view yourself as better than others and rejoice for the leveling effect of the gospel as Christ brings us together as brothers and sisters and now we can look one another in the eye and understand our common salvation in Him and simply celebrate His grace in our lives. Every single Sunday should be a great encouragement to you as you meditate upon these truths coming to church. I'd encourage you every Sunday morning, wake up early. Rehearse the gospel to yourself. Rehearse the truth of the gospel as it relates to your brothers and sisters. So that when you come here, you would be a blessing to all those around you, not least in your readiness to rejoice with them at your common salvation in Christ. The exhortation that comes with this is that we would ensure that there is no sense of superiority in our congregation. Or to put it another way, that there would be absolutely no one left on the periphery of our fellowship. You see, we may not articulate in our hearts or in our minds and far less with our lips a notion of being superior, but it often plays itself out in so much as we might leave people out of our fellowship. People on the periphery that you've chosen not to include in the exhortation as you come to terms with God's Word and the reality of Christ having broken down every dividing wall, whether it be between Jew and Gentile or the dividing walls that so readily exist amongst us today, the exhortation is that you would ensure and strive towards an inclusion in this church. That everyone who comes here to worship that professes faith in the Lord Jesus would genuinely feel welcomed, genuinely embraced by their brothers and sisters in Christ. May unity mark our congregation. Paul goes on from there and explains the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. How, verse 15 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Again, this is a difficult verse and there's much discussion as to what exactly Paul has in view when he speaks about Christ having abolished the law of commandments. At a surface level, it might seem that Paul is referring to the Old Testament law. And certainly, it is true that when Christ came and he shed his blood for us, his body was given for us, as we think about it, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we understand at that moment, he ushered in a new covenant, and the old covenant was now done away with. Theologically, that is absolutely true. The old covenant, the Mosaic law, had a time stamp on it. It was never meant to be eternal. God had designed it for a period, and then He, in His wisdom, sent Christ at the right time to usher in a new covenant so that the old law is now obsolete. However, it is unlikely that Paul is speaking specifically about the Old Testament law here because it was never the Old Testament law that caused that hostility. The context and the flow of the argument is that there was once hostility between Jew and Gentile. That's now been done away with by the abolishment of the law The problem, if you take the law of commandments to simply refer to the old covenant, is that that was never designed to bring about the hostility that was there. If you really come to terms with the Old Testament law, it was good, it was to be life-giving for the people, and it was to be a means by which Gentiles would come into Old Testament Israel. Exodus chapter 18, God says, If you obey my commandments, I will make you a kingdom of priests. If you obey my commandments, you, the nation of Israel, will be a kingdom of priests. Priests were those that brought the people to God. So the nation was supposed to function in a manner that the other surrounding nations, the Gentiles, were looking in on Israel, seeing the good thing that they had from the Lord and streaming towards God as a result. The law in and of itself, as God has given it in His Word, was never intended to create the dividing wall of hostility that Paul refers to in the previous verse. So more accurately, we should understand verse 15 as referring to the distortion of the law that had come about through time as many had sought to interpret the law, in some cases protect the law, often with hard hearts, they had over time distorted the law. And so Old Testament Israel were not genuinely living by 
faith in the law that God had given them, but were actually living to a human standard that was not by any means causing them to flourish, but was actually rendering them as hypocrites. This is what the prophets spoke about time and time again. You go through the motions. Your lips honor me, but your hearts are far from me. You bring me these sacrifices, and I'm tired of them. They had distorted the law. They were not following it in the way God had intended. And it was that that had created the dividing wall of hostility. As the nations looked in on Israel, they did not see anything compelling They found no cause to gravitate towards this nation and seek out their God. Oftentimes, they found many reasons to keep their distance from Old Testament Israel. And so, Paul seems to be referring here to the fact that that distortion of the law has been done away with. And by implication, he is bringing into view the new law that comes with the new covenant, but so also the reality that with it we gain new hearts. You see, as Christ issues a new law, as the apostles write for us many commandments and imperatives, we would be just as prone to disfigure them and disobey them if it were not for the additional reality that God has given to us new covenant hearts. And it's with our new hearts that we obey the new law given to us that we would flourish as God's people, never ever intending to create dividing walls of hostility, but the law itself is given that we might be unified. You understand as you read the commandments, especially as you work through the epistles, how many of them are given to the church plural that you as a body would be seeking to submit collectively to the imperatives given in Scripture. Again, we are reminded of how the Christian faith is not supposed to be lived out in an individualistic manner, but rather the very law that we have received, that we are responsible to obey, having been the recipients of God's grace and salvation. The very law that God has given us is intended to unite us. And with new hearts, we are excited to obey and be knit together in unity. Paul says as much when he moves on to say that Christ might create in himself one new man. Now, it's important to remember, as we discussed last time, Paul here is not attempting to give a fully fledged theology of the New Testament people of God as different and distinct from the Old Testament people of God. There are differences between Israel and the church. There are some points of continuity. Paul is not here attempting to unpack all of the theology that pertains to the New Testament people of God Rather, he simply wants to draw his reader's attention to the fact that there is a people of God in this new covenant era, and in that people of God, Jew and Gentile are one. He simply wants to labor the fact of our unity. And so notice and pay attention 
to the metaphor that he uses here. That Christ might create in himself one new man. I am not physically attached to you, and yet in Christ we are one new man. You see how it's a metaphor, it's a picture that is laboring the unity that we enjoy as Christians. It is so close to the language that is used in the second chapter of our Bible to describe the unity enjoyed between a husband and a wife. God brings husband and wife together and makes them one flesh. In a metaphor that is so close to that, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, in the church you are one new man. He is laboring the reality of your unity. And so there is an encouragement and an exhortation that flows out of this. The encouragement is that we would delight in the unity that we enjoy in Christ. It is not simply that there is an absence of hostility. It is not simply that there is an absence of a negative thing but there is the presence of a positive thing. There is an absence of hostility and there is an overwhelming, emphatic presence of unity bonded together as one new man in Christ, which means I can enjoy genuine, deep-seated, lasting fellowship with you. Even if our likes are not necessarily the same, even if there are things that we disagree on, we don't see eye to eye on everything, the fact that we have both proclaimed Christ as Lord and Savior, that God has given us eyes of faith to look upon His Son as our only Savior, that is what brings us together. And it is that that gives us this deep-seated unity, far, far deeper than anything else that you will find outside of the church. I've heard so many testimonies of an individual being saved in the context of an unbelieving family and so quickly they testify to their relationships in the body of Christ being so much more meaningful and powerful than even their relationships amongst their family members. And it's because in Christ you are one with your fellow Christians. You don't find this unity at a social club. You don't find this unity on a sports team. You don't find this unity in the workplace, though there are many good things that bring us together with other people, if it is not Christ, then it is not this unity. And in so much as it is not wrong to enjoy the camaraderie and the friendship that we can find in those other spheres of living, 
None of it compares to the unity that is only to be found in the local church. And so there is an encouragement that you would rejoice as we just sang in the last hymn, how good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. That is an understatement. Oh, how incredible it is. How glorious it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in the unity that only Christ brings. And the exhortation is that we would fight for it. Do not think that Satan is happy with what's happening here Sunday by Sunday. Don't think the enemy is pleased with the growth of this church. Don't think that there is anything about our fellowship, our praise, our hunger for God's Word that he's okay with. So anticipate that there would be struggles and trials Understand there are many, many devices that he would use so as to sow seeds of disunity amongst us. Don't be so naive to think that the cause of disunity won't come unless we are on our guard. And as I said this morning, the labor begins now. You don't live a reactionary Christian life. You're proactive, you're diligent, you're disciplined. You seek to honor the Lord now so as to put up safeguards around us, to build a strong wall around us, to fight off the devices of the enemy who would so love to sow cords of disunity amongst us. You fight every selfish ambition in your heart. You make it a practice today to wage war against the lusts of the flesh that are the cause of fights amongst us. James chapter 3 and 4. And you choose to lay down your life in love for your brothers and sisters around you. Just look around you this evening. These are the brothers and sisters that the Lord God has ordained that you would do life with. You didn't decide to come here. He chose that you would be here. He's sovereign over your life and He ordained that you would be part of this church during this season. These are your brothers and sisters that you must lay down your life for. And so you choose in a proactive way as opportunity presents itself week after week to spend yourself in love for the good of your fellow Christian. That's the exhortation that comes out of the fact that God has already made you one in the Gospel. Now it isn't for no purpose, the final part of Paul's argument, we see verse 16 and following, Christ might reconcile us both to God. 
in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There, Paul has in view the hostility between us and God. To begin with, at the end of verse 14, the hostility between Jew and Gentile, the horizontal hostility there, end of verse 16, the hostility between us and God, as that has been killed, it overflows into an absence of hostility between one another. It's exactly the same principle of peace flooding our hearts, peace between us and God, therefore we become peacemakers amongst one another. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near, to the Gentile and to the Jew alike. The same gospel has saved you. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It is not that God has saved us, brought us into unity with one another for no purpose. He doesn't save us and bring us into fellowship without giving us a a goal, a purpose, a reason for being. Why does this church exist? Why does the church exist? Why does any church exist so that Through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. The purpose for us coming together is to worship God together. That is why God has saved you. The refrain of Ephesians chapter 1 comes to mind to the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. Three times Paul says it. And remember, when we were there, we observed just how corporate is the theology of Ephesians 1. Do not read that glorious eulogy only understanding it as being applicable to you in isolation from your brothers and sisters. Understand it was originally written to be received as a church. That letter would be read aloud to the church and they gather together and they understand that they have collectively received these blessings. There is an individual moment of salvation when the man or the woman puts their faith in Christ and is justified before God. But the second that happens, you now belong to the universal church. And so thereafter, you are commended, Scripture commends you to understand your salvation and your sanctification and your final glorification with reference to other Christians. I pray that you would think about your Christianity more with reference to other believers than you wouldn't. There'll be times when you think about your personal walk with the Lord. Your personal prayer life, your personal study of His Word. There'll be times when you think about your sin, when your thoughts of the Christian life will be very individual. I pray that they would be fewer. 
than your thoughts about the corporate, communal, Christian life. That your thoughts about your walk with Jesus, your devotion to Jesus, that your examination of your study of His Word, your self-examination of your obedience to His Word would be more framed with an understanding of your belonging to the body than it wouldn't be. That you would strive against the current of this age which is so focused on the individual, so focused on the individual's preference, that you would strive to not be a part of that stream of thinking and labor to think in the way that Scripture commends us to think. That we would think about our faith and our devotion to the Lord as part of a body that we would more regularly think about our corporate obedience to His Word. That your prayers would more often than not be prayers for our corporate striving. That your desires to honor the Lord would more often than not be desires that you project beyond yourself to your brothers and sisters in Christ because of your deep love for them and your understanding of what it means to come in one spirit to your heavenly Father. The encouragement and the exhortation that flow out from this portion of Paul's argument, the encouragement is very, very simple. Understand this, every time you come to church, you are situated at the very, very center of God's will. There is nowhere else He would rather you be on a Sunday than with His people worshiping Him in one spirit. Be greatly encouraged every time You prioritize the assembling of the saints, the gathering of the saints. Every time you go to the effort to put aside other things and prioritize the gathering of the saints on a Sunday for corporate worship, know this, that you are at the very, very center of God's will. He rejoices that you would be here on the Lord's Day. The exhortation is that you would become a discipler of others towards this end. There are so many that think about corporate worship as one of many options. Happy to be here when it works for them. Happy to take other options when it doesn't. There's only so much I can bang the drum to come to church. Be a discipler of others. Spend some time with other believers. Instill in them a glorious vision for the church. 
speak to others about how wonderful it is to come together with God's people on the Lord's Day. Teach others the priority of beginning and ending the Lord's Day in worship together. Determined to have a sharpening effect on those around you. Because it is one of the highest privileges that we have. We have been brought together in one spirit to our Father in heaven. And so every time we gather together as a church, may the Lord bless us with a profound sense of the unity that we have in the gospel and the privilege that is ours to worship him together as brothers and sisters in Christ in one spirit. Would you pray with me now to close? Father, we give you thanks this evening for the truths that we have set our hearts upon, meditated upon, not least. Christ is our peace. He brings peace by his life and death and resurrection. He offers peace. Paul goes further in his language. He is our peace. Our unity is centered on him. It is because of Christ that we are brothers and sisters. Not for anything else that we might have in common. Not for anything else that we might enjoy together. It is the foundation of Christ that brings us together as your people. We praise you that he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility, that dividing wall that was there between first century Jews and Greeks We are so prone to set up similar dividing walls. Father, we delight that there is no superiority in the gospel. We've all received a common salvation. There can be no hostility when we take in the nature of the grace that has saved us. We praise you that the distortion of the law has been done away with. You've given us a new law and with it new hearts. We desire to obey. We want to submit ourselves to your teaching and your teaching inherently unites. Your teaching brings us together. We praise you that as one body we seek to be obedient. As one people, one new man in Christ, we want to obey, and that knits our hearts together. And we praise you that you have saved us, not without a purpose, not without a goal. You desire to be worshipped. You've brought us together in one spirit to yourself, that we would be to the praise of your glory. 
that our lives would be to the praise of your glory. We give you thanks. This is the driving motive of our existence. Not merely as individuals, but as one body, as brothers and sisters, our lives are to be to the praise of your glory. Teach us further the privilege of the unity that we have in Christ. And may we be disciples of others, leaders of others, who readily champion the privilege of gathering together as your people to praise you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.